sometimes, particularly when pressures are too intense, that tips over into something that becomes overly self-critical, overly anxious, overly responsible, uh, and and sort of very hard on the self, not really giving the self a break. And that's one thing that I think can really help is recognizing when you need to be kinder to yourself, when you need to give yourself a chance to replenish yourself and restore yourself. I'm Dr. Mark Rowe, and welcome to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. As a family physician, my expertise is supporting people in the areas of positive health and lifestyle medicine. Join me in conversations that share life lessons, health habits, and leadership practices, focusing on positive psychology, lifestyle medicine, and ways that enable you to live with more vitality on purpose. Appreciating that when it comes to your vitality, that everything is so interconnected. Episodes will air weekly, and you can find me wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, on my website, drmarkrow.com. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined in the doctor's chair today by Dr. Sue Stewart-Smith, psychiatrist, psychotherapist, and author of The Well-Gardened Mind. This British Sunday Times bestseller and gardening book of the year analyzes the relationship between gardening and mental health. Sue also reads this book herself as an audiobook, sharing many important insights, including the benefit of cultivating robust relationships in life, how just like gardening, cultivating strong, robust relationships requires much care and attention. Join us today to hear how the positive anticipation of gardening can provide so many benefits for our mental, emotional and physical health and well-being. Enjoy the conversation. It shares lots of stimulating ideas to consider, simply allowing you to live your life with more vitality. If you're a leader who recognizes, particularly since COVID-19, that living with vitality and building a more resilient mind matter now more than ever for you and your team, then this podcast is for you. For further details, visit drmarkrow.com. So I'm delighted to be joined in the doctor's chair today by Dr. Sue Stewart-Smith. Welcome, Sue. Thank you, Mark. I'm very pleased to join you today. Sue, I mean, I read your book, The Well-Garden Mind, earlier this year. I mean, it really blew my mind in terms of how brilliant it was. And, you know, that really led to me, you know, requesting you to come on the podcast, because I think you've got such an interesting perspective on gardens and nature. Can I ask you, Sue, first of all, where did that interest and passion come from? Oh, my goodness. Well, firstly, thank you for your, your very kind and appreciative words about the book. You know, it came like most of these things. My interest came through personal experience and also, I think, a sort of a sea change really that happened in my attitude towards gardens and gardening. So, as a as a young as a young woman, um, you know, at university that sort of age, I was a great lover of nature, and, and I spent a lot of time walking and hiking in in nature and, and visiting the sea and so on. But I did I did look at gardening at that point in my life a bit as if it was a bit like outdoor housework. I sort of just saw the menial side of it. I didn't see the meaningful side of it. And then I I fell in love and 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 got married to my 
now husband, Tom Stewart-Smith, who is a, a garden designer. He was just setting out then. Now he's become very well known. And he, of course, was absolutely, he was a great plantsman and garden lover and longing to, to develop a garden. And I felt, well, you know, he loves gardening. I'm, 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 I'm going to get into this too. And I, uh, the first sort of phase of our gardening life was probably very much me tagging along. And we had very tiny children at that time. And it wasn't until our youngest child, Harry, went to primary school that I actually decided what I needed was a little plot of my own. And that's when I really began to get into gardening. And I, the first thing I had was a small herb garden. Uh, I'd always loved cooking and um, I, I began to grow all sorts of interesting culinary herbs and some medicinal herbs as well. So that was what hooked me in, really. That's where I would say my own interest came. And, and really over the years that noticing its, its effects on me, its calming effects on me, and its invigorating effects on me. Because I think, I think one of the wonderful things about gardening is it, it can do both. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, for me as a doctor and as a human being, I mean, I think being in nature, spending time in nature is so emotionally uplifting. It provides such mental clarity and really can be so invigorating and restorative for your, your overall health and well-being. Can, can you talk to us, Sue, about that, you know, in terms of your perspective on nature as medicine? I think, I think nature as medicine is something that works on us many, many different levels. And, you know, the most fundamental level is actually through, through our physiology. So, you know, the research shows that people's heart rates and blood pressure, you know, become healthier when they're, when they're in natural settings. Their levels of the stress hormone cortisol also become healthier. And they, you know, in terms of their um, electrical activity in their brain, uh, there's more alpha rhythm present. So that's, that's associated with release of serotonin, for example. So, so there, are, there are very fundamental ways in which, particularly being in green nature, because I think, you know, there's, that nature comes in many different forms, doesn't it? I think what we're talking about is sort of flourishing nature, a sense of trees, parklands, gardens. And, you know, actually, of course, the, sea, the seaside is also in, in its own way invigorating. But, but so it's not, it's not as if it's unique to, to gardens, this effect. But, but so the, there's, that, there's that broader effect of the natural world on us, which must, must be uh, evolutionarily coded in us, in our, in our genes, in our makeup, as a response to the environment around us. And the natural world also has a particular kind of stimulation in terms of um, how it engages our attention you know, this is particularly important in the world that we live in now, you know, in the 21st century, with our gadgets and our screens and our computers and, and so on, the constant sort of interruptions, distractions, um, notifications, whatever uh, that we get, the sort of beeps uh, that come through our, our various gadgets. Nature is the antithesis of that, really, in the sense that it engages a much broader focus in the brain particularly engaging the right hemisphere. And our everyday lives are inevitably very task focused, which is engaging the left hemisphere. So, so, I mean, this is putting it very simplistically because in fact, we use both hemispheres all the time, but it's about the kind of attention, the two hemispheres 
specialise in different forms of attention. And by getting out into nature, I, mean, I can certainly feel that myself if I've spent the last few hours looking at a screen. Suddenly you get outside, your eyes relax. You know, green is a very restful colour for the visual system. And just the sounds in nature are intrinsically soothing, whether that's the noise of the wind in the trees or the bird song and so on. So there's a level at which our autonomic nervous system, through that soothing effect, is shifted more towards our parasympathetic system. So it helps us come out of sort of fight flight mode, which, which you know, for, for, for people who are doing stressful jobs, they're often operating on a lot of the time. And it's fascinating, you know, the recent research in, I think it was the University of Exeter and published in Nature magazine, that 120 minutes of time in nature each week seems to be a tipping point for experiencing enhanced benefits in terms of your well-being. Yes, I think it's interesting that there have been various attempts to to measure it. And, and I, I think that there have been other studies that have shown as little as 30 minutes a week can make a difference. So I wouldn't want people to be put off by feeling that they can't quite manage two hours a week. But really, you know, ideally, we should all be getting half an hour a day, I think, yes. um, to have some sort of balance in our lives. Yes. Um, that should be achievable. I certainly try and take as much of my exercise each day outdoors, regardless of what what else I'm doing, um, rather than uh, going to the gym, let's say, you know, to, to exercise outside. And green exercise has really been shown to have greater benefits than, than exercising indoors. I like to say that, you know, exercising in nature is like exercise squared. <laughs> yeah, I think that, you I know. think it is. Yeah, because of all, also all the beneficial effects that are occurring through the cardiovascular system and the and the autonomic nervous system and so on you're in a physiologically good place to to benefit from from the aerobic exercise just for our listeners sue could you just explain why nature you said taps more into the right hemisphere and just explain for our listeners the main difference between the left hemisphere of the brain and the right hemisphere just to kind of clear up that point for them the great work on, on this has been done by Ian McGilchrist, the psychiatrist who wrote The Master and His Emissary, which is a fantastic book. If your listeners don't know that, I, I thoroughly recommend it. He's a, a, a neuropsychiatrist, and it's really been his life's work to look at the differences between the right and left hemispheres of the brain. And, and what it boils down to is that the fundamental difference, or one of the most important differences, is, is about the type of attention that each of the hemispheres specialise in. And our left hemisphere specialises in task-focused attention, for example, you know, manipulating objects or, or doing tasks on a screen. Um, it's obviously where much of our linguistic functioning is, is cited as well. Um, and, and the very nature of 21st century life means that we're employed in those kind of tasks. So we overwork one aspect of our attention just because of the, you know, the structure of, or the nature of most people's work. The right hemisphere specialises in a much broader form of attention. And, and if, if the way McGilchrist describes it is, is actually the reason these differences evolved. And, and they, they persist in, um, they, you know, they're present in other animals and birds as well, is that, is that um, to survive in the wild, an, an animal needs to be able to focus on catching its prey on the one hand. Um, so something that's very close uh, and needs very intense focus, uh, but simultaneously 
needs to have an eye on the broader horizon on the landscape. So the two hemispheres evolved to specialise in, in this in these different forms of attention. Just simply getting out into nature, whether that's hiking, gardening, kayaking, climbing, doesn't matter. You are really engaging that form of attention. So you're, you're, you're kind of, you're rebalancing, you're integrating the hemispheres more and you're, re, you're rebalancing your brain function. Fascinating. I'm sure you're really interested in the work of Roger Ulrich, uh, as I am, in terms of, you know, people that went to hospital that had a view through their room of nature, you know, needed less pain medication post-op, spent less time in hospital, seemed to get better quicker. I mean, this is really interesting stuff, isn't it, Sue? It's very interesting. And I think one of the rather shocking things about Ulrich's research is how long ago he started doing it. And that really, it's only recently it's been taken more seriously. Um, you know, his first study was in the mid-1980s. Um, and he's been doing, you know, doing these studies and and, and actually spawned a whole field, I think. Um, so, the, you know, his findings have been replicated in different parts of the world and different, um, different settings. But it is, it is rather shocking, really, I think, that it has taken so long uh, for, for us to, you know, for the medical community particularly, to, to take these kind of findings more seriously. And, you know, some of his studies show that patients are discharged on average, a day earlier following surgery, for example. And, you know, that's that it really ought to uh, make sort of a hospital, the accountants and the budgeting, as it were, the finances really pay attention because that's is potentially a big cost saving as well as being a huge benefit to that individual. For me, it's one of the really interesting things about this concept of lifestyle as medicine, which I'm very passionate about. It's nearly as if the lifestyle interventions, whether it's time in nature, exercise, more sleep, you know, learning to properly recharge from stress or build great social connections. It's, it's as if they're so simple. Uh, how could they be so effective? But the reality is they are. <laughs> I think that's right. I think for much of the latter half of the 20th century, the exciting aspects of medicine and the, the sort of, you know, advances, of course, you know, there've been many great technological advances and so on and advances in uh, pharmaceuticals and so on, you know, that we've, we've, we've vested so much in that and lost sight of, of for example, how much the environment matters, you know, um, uh, how much the setting of a hospital might make a difference. Um, and, and really, as you say, these things seem very simple. Um, you know, many of the observations that, that, that people like Roger Ulrich are making today um, were actually written about uh, very compellingly by Florence Nightingale way back. And it's as if we sort of threw, as if, you know, health professions uh, threw the baby out with the bathwater a bit and, and are now beginning to re recover that and, and think much more seriously about lifestyle and, and environment and so on and the role that that can play in helping people recover. I'm delighted you've mentioned Florence Nightingale because it reminds me of your description of her in the book. And it's just coming back to me now about how she recommended kind of natural antibiotics in, in terms of, you know, natural light and a little bit of nature and fresh air as important as anything else in terms of helping people recover. Yes, absolutely. You know, and I think uh, some, some, there have been some other studies into light in hospitals and the importance of, of, um, of, of light, not only views of nature. 
Um, and again, the findings are that sort of people in well, well-lit rooms generally fare, fare better. And, and of course, you know, actually, when we were talking about the, the, the health benefits of getting outdoors earlier, you know, our need for, for sunlight is, is, um, is not to be underestimated. You know, our, we are biologically attuned to the rhythms, the diurnal rhythms um, of changes in light. And again, with our screens and so on, and our electric lighting indoors, we can we can put our bodies out of kilter very easily. For the person who, for whatever reason, you know, they're, they're stuck indoors, you know, at their desk, maybe Monday to Friday, and they can get out at the weekend. But during the week, would you recommend an indoor plant? And if so, what type of indoor plants do you think are conducive to good health? I think indoor plants have, have a great role to play for people who, who haven't got a garden or can't get out, as you say. Um, there have been some very interesting studies on, on introducing them into different settings, office settings, hospital settings, um, care homes and so on. And they've all shown positive benefits. So I think, I think some of it is also about not only having the greenery around you, it's entering into a caring relationship, a nurturing relationship. And, and yeah, I think actually, you know, so far we've talked a lot about nature, but, but of course what gardening adds to that, adds to the exposure to nature, is, the, is this nurturing and caring relationship, tending to something, paying close attention to it, noticing what it needs and so on. And I wanted to communicate in the book was that I think we've come culturally to undervalue care and the, and the place of care in terms of mental health. You know, it's very easy for the care to be seen as a, a depleting activity or, or a demand on the self. And, you know, in a consumerist society, it's, you know, we're encouraged to think we can buy what we need, get what we need, replace things that are broken, um, and care gets somewhere lost in that. So what's interesting about care in terms of the neurochemistry of care is, is that it is intimately related with our endorphin system, our natural opioid system. And that is why many people do find uh, activities, caring activities, maybe caring for a pet as well, very calming, calming and pleasurable sort of you know replenishing uh and, and obviously one has to titrate it you know if if you if you have too large a garden or too much to care for then of course it does become depleting but but intrinsically care is an important activity to be engaged in and really helps boost self-esteem and that effect actually came across very strongly in my research for example in inside prisons um interviewing prisoners who were gardening on, on various gardening projects and that entering into a caring relationship for people who hadn't had much opportunity in their lives to do that was, was fundamental to, to how gardening helped them really. I think it's absolutely fascinating how, you know, the act of caring, as you said, boosts oxytocin and, and calming brain endorphins and so on. And I think care is massively undervalued in the modern sort of healthcare system. And I, I mean, I know as my work as a GP that, you know, listening, being a, being a good listener and enabling somebody to feel listened to and heard and understood, hopefully, and, and valued and respected. You know, sometimes you can't cure and sometimes people will figure out their own solutions, but they want to be heard. No, I agree with you. Making time for that and, and 
you know, health professionals these days work under such enormous time pressures. It's very easy for that aspect of, of the care, caring relationship to get squeezed out. And I, I actually think in a, in, in a way, you know, a garden in a, in a healthcare setting can really contribute to that because fundamentally a garden is a cared for space. And I was struck when we spoke earlier, when you described the waiting rooms in your own practice, you know, that the, the patients who are waiting have a view of the garden and 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 that immediately helps someone feel they're in a, they will be cared for in this cared for place um you know that's 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 very very helpful in that situation and important i think well i think so too i think environment has a massive impact on on how we feel and in the context of of healthcare i think it's it's really important in terms of how you show people that you value them. And we're absolutely so blessed to have the Waterford Health Park with its little internal garden. And uh, you have an open invitation now to come to Waterford in Ireland sometime and we'll show you the health park. And I'd our, really and love to do that. <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated by it. It sounds wonderful. Um, but 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 it has, I, I can tell you definitely, it, it does help lower anxiety levels. It does yeah bring us a therapeutic benefit to the space. And, you know, it's a space that can be enjoyed by by patients and by visitors and by staff. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful oasis of tranquility right in the middle of our building. So we're very fortunate to have that. So can I just move on a little bit? And I know that you do a lot of work in the area of burnout prevention, particularly working with medical professionals. Can I ask you, uh, you know, as a doctor and as a psychiatrist yourself, what do you think about burnout? And, you know, what might you say in terms of how we might look at minimizing and preventing burnout if possible? I think there are two aspects in terms of thinking about burnout, actually. One is, um, if you like, the the external uh, setting that may be help contributing to the burnout. So the demands of the workplace, the the pressures, you know, which may be excessive um, and externally imposed. And then on the other hand, the internal pressures within within the self. And and it's and it's often about how those two interact. So let's let's sort of think about um, doctors as you as you said, I, I work with um, I work for a not-for-profit organization called Doc Health. It helps doctors suffering from stress and burnout and, and other, other disorders. And, you know, with the pandemic, the demands on doctors have been so, and all health professionals, of course, have been so extreme that it's not surprising that many people are struggling. So there's a great deal of, of external pressure contributing to the situation. Um, and that can, be, that can be harder to address because sometimes the only solution is, is to reduce working hours, you know. Um, but beyond that, it may be hard. You know, this, this, the problems may be so systemic um, that it's hard for those to be uh, really changed. But the internal aspect is something that is worth attending to in thinking about that. And that is really about, um, uh, I think, the sort of pitfalls of um, perfectionism, for example. You know, perfectionism is, of course, a good thing in many ways. You know, and certainly we want we want our doctors to be to be to have that sort of sense of um, striving and wanting to do the best and being conscientious and so on. But sometimes, particularly when pressures are too intense, that tips over into something that becomes overly self-critical, overly anxious, 
overly responsible uh, and and sort of very hard on the self, not really giving the self a break. And that's one thing that I think can really help is recognizing when you need to be kinder to yourself, when you need to give yourself a chance to replenish yourself and restore yourself, and also not to get isolated. That internal situation is in its, in its nature a very isolating predicament, isolated predicament. So reaching out to colleagues, drawing on whatever strengths there are in the team around you, not separating yourself and so on. I think all those things can help. Um, but I do, I mean, I think burnout is a very real issue. It's sometimes seen as rather controversial, isn't it? Because it, you know, it's not a diagnosis and I don't think it should be medicalized. Uh, but I think it is about excessive demands both internal and external. Yes. And, and you know, I've seen a, a good deal of burnout over the years and I often find people present with this sense of emotional exhaustion. Mm. And, and as you said, you know, it, it often comes from that inner critic and perhaps sense of perfectionism. There may well be workplace issues as well, of course, but the lack of self-compassion, I think you really hit on something so important to be kind to yourself particularly in these COVID challenge times to appreciate that nothing is ever perfect and neither are you. And that's absolutely fine. Absolutely. Yes. As you said, Sue, strive to do your best, but be willing to give yourself a break and, you know, treat yourself with the same you know, kindness and empathy and support as you would a good friend. I think that's right. I think sometimes thinking about what you would say to a friend, if a friend was feeling or experiencing these things can be very helpful. It can help shift people out you know, away from their inner critic because they wouldn't they wouldn't unleash their inner critic on their friend, um, and and I think that can be a very helpful helpful tactic. Um, I I think I think also just you know linking up with others. I think one of the things that happens when people feel stressed and exhausted is they begin to withdraw uh, in order to conserve energy. You know, it's a, it's, it's a natural thing to do. But of course, that can set up a vicious circle because uh, the more isolated you are, the less you're getting all, all, all that, you know, we are social animals, actually. And so much of our, our mental health really depends on it feeling part of a group, part of a team, um, you know, being able to share, share our issues uh, and have a laugh as well sometimes, you know, um, humour. Uh, is a great uh, diffuser, isn't it, of um, Absolutely. all sorts of stresses. I mean, there's been a brilliant study ongoing in Harvard, I think, since 1938, which are now looking at these people's descendants. I think there was over 200 people in the study initially, and they found that, you know, the quality of your relationships at age 50 is a better predictor of your long-term health than your cholesterol level. Mm, you know, the, mm, that relationships, mm. robust relationships are so important mm, for us mm, to mm. enable us to stay connected and to embrace challenges in life and move forward. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and that that quality of relationships is something that we need to cultivate throughout life. Um, you know, that uh, it's a bit like a garden, if you like. You know, it's it needs it needs care and attention, um, that aspect of our lives. And, and again, you know, under pressure, it's very easy to let that go. And that can, in, in turn, in turn gives other problems, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I like that anal analogy of the garden. I'm just visualizing it now in real time, because in every garden, there's always weeds and there always mm, will be. Mm, and mm, and mm. that's OK. No garden will ever be perfect and neither should mm. you. But that's mm. OK. You can deal with the weeds as best you can, but there'll always be a few, but minimize them and Focus on the beautiful plants, let them flourish. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the other very, very powerful benefit of, of gardening is the way that it's always changing, the way that it draws you into thinking about the future in a positive way. So planning, looking forward to what, whatever you're going to be, or the seeds that you're germinating, you know, whether it's the flowers or the produce that you're going to be enjoying or sharing with others. Um, and even at this time of year, you know, only, only just earlier today, I was starting to look through the seed catalogue that had arrived on my doormat um, and beginning to think about next year. And that's, that's terribly important for our, for our mental health, being able to have a sense of positive anticipation about, about things in life. And, and it's one of the reasons why gardening in older life can be so helpful, because, of course, other, other opportunities to do that may be diminishing, you know, other ways of feeling, you, you know, your, your career may have come to an end, you know, it may be other, other avenues for, for projecting into the future. Often, you know, they, they diminish as we, as, as, as we reach, you know, older age. Um, I think, I think... And, and also during the pandemic, I mean, you know, the, the, the reason gardening was so popular, um, uh, you know, in that first lockdown and, and on into the, uh, the following year, um, earlier this year, was, was partly, of course, people recognising the benefits of, of getting outside into nature but also that that it was so hard for anyone to you know that holidays were cancelled uh you know weddings family gatherings you know there was very little else that 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 gave you gave us a way of of thinking two or three months ahead with sort of a sense of oh yes i'm looking forward to that you know um, it was such a frightening, frightening time, wasn't it? The beginning of the pandemic. Absolutely. And, and it's not surprising there was a run on seeds, you know, because seeds really do do that like nothing else. I think you hit the nail on the head. Being in nature, being in your garden, it feels good. And, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson, he put it so well when he said, adopt pace of nature. Her secret is patience. And it does. It does get you looking forward with anticipation, as you said, Sue, to next spring. I mean, we have a camellia outside our kitchen window now and the buds are out and, you know, it's about to pop into flower, I would say, within the next three or four weeks. I can't wait to see it. Uh, I'm already thinking about, you know, a magnolia up near the front gate and what's it going to do next year? You know, we've some bulbs planted. It, as you said, it's always changing. Like life, the only constant is change. And that's really what's so invigorating about it. Absolutely is. And, you know, we need little bits of novelty in life as well. And, and a garden, you know, if you can't travel much and if you can't get about much, because a garden's always changing, um, there, there are always there's so many different, you know, the, the day your camellia comes into flower, you'll get a real a real buzz from it because they'll be, you know, it'll surprise you. And, and that it's really important not to underestimate the importance of these small, these small things. I think one of the um, people I write about in my book uh, at some length is Sigmund Freud. And, you know, in the last 16 years of his life, he was forbidden to travel by his doctors because of his condition. He was suffering from a, a very complicated cancer of the mouth and had had extensive surgery with, lots of complications and he was no longer allowed to go hiking in the Alps, which is what he'd always loved doing. Uh, and for him, the garden became his substitute. And every day he, he walked around the garden and, you know, 
really noticed all the changes and and often when visitors came to see him you know their accounts of you know they were actually longing to talk about the you know, psychoanalytic business as it were and uh, really all he wanted to do was walk them around the garden and, sh- and show them you know what was what was happening in the garden so i think it yeah i think it's a very important thing that gardens can contribute to to our lives something i've noticed Sue, in my work as a as a gp is that i've noticed a number of people over the years who've been very old in terms of their date of birth, but have been very good uh, biologically, perhaps at 85 or 90. And almost invariably, um, they have a love of gardens and a love of nature. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I do tackle the whole question of older age and gardening in, in the book. And, and I, d- you know, I, I wouldn't want to make too simplistic a prescription about it, but I think the most compelling research in this area is comes out of the Harvard Grant study, and uh, which is a very large-scale longitudinal study in the US. And what what the researchers found was that if people were engaging in an activity which they classified as as generative, um, and by that they mean an element of creativity and forward-looking, so it could take many different forms, uh, but that sense of, of, of you know, what we were talking about earlier, really, having, having a future perspective. Uh, if they were doing that in their 50s, they were three times more likely to be thriving when they reached their 80s. And, um, and gardening certainly does that for many people during that phase of life. So what you're saying is having in your 50s, having something that you're creative and passionate about that's giving you a sense of realistic optimism, something that you're really looking forward to with confidence makes you th- three times more likely? Yeah. Three times more likely. Yes, absolutely. And that, wow. and and generativity covers many things. It covers, you know, actually educating others, passing things on, passing your skills on. It's not. It, it, it can take many different forms. It doesn't have to involve nature connection, but of course that that brings plenty of benefit, other benefits too. But it is it is about how is life begins to close in, as it were, uh, in the later stages of life. How do you maintain that? that perspective, that longer perspective. And all the evidence suggests that that by being able to do that, people thrive for much longer and experience better health. And the researchers were amazed by the strength of the findings. And, you know, they factored in economic factors and physical health factors and so on. So I think it I think it is a robust finding, really. That was the Harvard Grant study, you said. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely yeah. fascinating. It, it is the largest study of, of aging that's ever been conducted. So you're clearly a person that really values her health and takes really good care of her own health. Can you give our listeners three take homes for a resilient mind? Well, I think, you know, I do think we've we've touched on quite a few of them. I think one thing I would say is, you know, when things are tough for whatever reason, it's so important to hold on to whatever is good in your life at that time as well. So, you know, we can all get into states where we're feeling very black and white about life and, and the black sort of the scales have tipped and actually not losing sight of what's good. I think making the most of that, recognizing what nourishes you. I think that's important as well. And that will be different for different people, um, you know, it's not one size fits all, but recognizing what it is that really that feeds you spiritually, emotionally, um, intellectually, and making time for that 
I think everything we've also talked about in terms of social supports, you know, fostering your relationships. I think that's that's so important. And at times of great stress and overwork, that can be it can be hard to make space for that. But it really does help help with with resilience, with with one's sort of staying power, I think. And finally for you, Sue, what's the meaning of life? It's such a difficult question, Mark. But I think <laughs> if I had to if I had to put it in a very simple way, I think it's about connection. Yes. For me, I think um, I think we have to see ourselves always in terms of different forms of connectedness, whether that's connection with nature, which brings great sense of meaning to many people's lives, and connection to others, connections across the generations, connections to other species as well. I think one of the reasons we've got collectively, globally into such a terrible state with the planetary crisis is because of a, a loss of a sense of, of connection and the way that that, that is what, how life operates. That's how, you know, uh, the, the natural world operates. Everything is connected to everything else. Well, Sue, it's been an absolute pleasure having you in the doctor's chair today. Keep leading, keep educating and inspiring all of us in terms of all things nature and well-being. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Mark. Thank you for listening to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. For further resources to support you to live with more vitality, please visit my website, drmarkrow.com.